Hey everyone and welcome back to the Transaction Podcast. Uh, it's so lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. If you did for last week's episode with Freak Daddy, that was a lot of fun and um, probably the most informal interview that I've ever conducted. This week, I'm very excited to bring to you uh, Chai Shavanu Asse, who is a science fiction fantasy author who was first introduced to sci-fi by her mother at an early age. Often sent to her room for misbehaving, she would curl up in a blanket with one of her mother's books, which subsequently ignited the spark that would fuel her love for literature. She initially began writing and performing poetry at the age of 12. Over time, she began to notice how difficult it was to find books that she could associate or identify with the characters, given the lack of representation. Thus, it became her greatest desire that little black children would see themselves represented in every genre, especially sci-fi. Her first book, Journey to Ghana and Other Stories, focuses entirely on the black experience. Likewise, it is her desire to continue writing stories and producing literary work that black people can see themselves represented in. Chai currently resides in California with her fine ass husband and amazing children. What a bio. <laughs> That's probably the best one I've ever read. Uh, I had such a lovely time talking to Chai and she is so wholehearted with everything that she does. Oh, she also models uh, really good boundaries and behaviour. And I have to apologise because I'd never heard Chai's name said out loud. So at, at first I was calling her Chi. So apologies for that. And um, I also... Um, during this interview I asked her a question she had uh well you'll you'll hear it when you listen to it but we talked a bit about uh avoiding the pain of our sort of marginalized identities because so often if you're part of a marginalized community so so much of the media and stories and tv shows and things are all about the pain of our community but very rarely about the excellence of our community and um i just wanted to point out that during this interview i did very boldly ask a question about that and uh chai was so gracious and very giving of herself to answer that question when I understand that uh, normally I would probably want to stay away from that sort of thing unless people had offered it in the first place. And I was very cognizant of the fact that I had asked a question that was perhaps leading towards this idea of pain from one's community. So I just wanted to draw your attention to that so that you can also uh, perhaps think about it um, in the future when you are talking to somebody from a, a marginalized community and just to be aware of how much we're focusing on the amazing things um, from each marginalized community rather than pain and suffering and so on and so forth not that that's not important but I think that we could speak positively about communities for years and still not level the playing field that's how I feel about it anyway so before we start uh, please do remember to find us on Facebook at the transaction podcast 
on Instagram at Transsection Podcast, Twitter at Transsection P and TikTok at Transsection Podcast. And if you haven't already, please do sign up for our mailing list at mooksharrishill.com forward slash transsection. There's a green box. You just put your name and your email address in there. And that way, every time there's an episode release or there's something exciting happening, we'll email you. But as I've said before, I promise it's not very much. It's once a week tops. And uh, generally it's it's just the important, it's just the headlines. We, we, it's not long. We don't spam anybody. And uh, I know that for me, I already have way too many emails coming in. So um, I, I appreciate, I do appreciate the, the many of you who have already signed up and have, have agreed to let me in your inbox. I massively appreciate it. And lastly, if anyone is currently looking for an inclusive and intersectional coach, I'm currently enrolling for private clients. So if that is something that you are looking for, also don't be scared. I'm not about to charge you the price of a mortgage. <laughs> it's, it's quite affordable. Um, but I only work with eight people at a time. So I do have a few spots still open. If you're looking for some personal help of any variety, it doesn't have to be LGBTQ plus related. It really can be anything. And I think particularly for people who don't fit into the mainstream very easily or have something about them that's a bit different because uh, that's my speciality. And I think that's what makes us awesome although we've not always had the tools to nurture those parts of ourselves. So it's very close to my heart anyway. Without further ado, here is today's episode with Chai. In a time of great change, we're all making efforts to become more ethical, more educated people. The Transaction Podcast interviews people from many different backgrounds to bring different aspects of human rights to life through humour, authenticity and personal stories. We are privileged to get a glimpse into different people's realities and to get first-hand advice and information from people on the front line of great social change. I'm Harris Eddie Hill, inclusive coach, speaker and educator, and this is The Transaction Podcast. Hey everyone and welcome to the Transaction Podcast and today I am joined by Chi. Hey Chi, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well, how are you? Good, yeah, well thank you. It's a very different time of day. Whereabouts are you? In the, You're in the States, right? Yes, I am. I am in Sacramento, California mm-hmm. and it is sunny and as great as um, we've been taught that it is. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, sunny, sunny California right now. <laughs> nice. I'm only a little bit jealous. Yeah. I imagine that California would be a bit, a bit more my speed weather-wise. <laughs> I think that you would love it. Yeah. I think that you would love it. It's um, we do have places where it snows, not where I live though, <laughs> um, but high in the mountains we do get snow. It's 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 a very interesting landscape, but a lot of deserty, more type of landscapes. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. So for those of us who are listening, um, I came across Chi on Facebook and Chi runs a kind of like an intersectional page. And you talk a bit about like human rights and particularly about like um, 
you've done some things centering particularly around the black community and black lives matter black rights and things like that but i've seen that you cover quite a few different things and uh, i know mental health is important to you how did you end up getting into running a facebook page how did that come about so this is an interesting question because it actually started out as um, Chai the Poet. Um, so I was just trying to promote my poetry. Um, and I was like, let me just start a Facebook page and see what goes, you know, what happens from there. Um, and so I started the page and just slowly just random things uh, were coming into my space in terms of foolery. Um, thus the, the ratchet part of the name, Chai the Woke Ratchet. Um, so the foolery was coming forth and then uh, a lot of political things were happening. Um, not too long after, I, not too, uh, long, I guess, like around the time I made it or maybe right before I made the page, um, Tamir Rice, um, had gotten murdered by the police. He was a 12 year old. He was playing with a, um, a pellet gun or a BB gun, um, and someone called the police on him. And then he, um, the police showed up and literally 0.12 seconds, um, that's what the camera said. He got, he pretty much got out of his car and started shooting. So it was the inspiration in terms of like the political. Um, we had at Tray Mar Trayvon Martin not too long before. And then around that same time, Tamir Rice and Sandra Bland. And so that's where the political uh, portion came, came from. It was just, it was exhausting. And I just needed a way to, um, express myself um so i did it on the facebook page and um it just started growing from there that's amazing and how did a lot of that stuff affect you because i mean i i've got quite a few uh, black friends in various um places in america and um obviously i, ha I have yet to hear someone say as a black person my upbringing in the in the states has been great We've, I've had zero problems. <laughs> um, but how, how was all of that stuff for you when all of those political things were happening? And, you know, if did those things, um, particularly with like Trayvon Martin and um, Tamir Rice, was that, did that bring like a new level of concern for you? Or like, what was the impact around that time for you? Right. Um, so normally I wouldn't answer questions like this because it's painful, um, and it impacts, but because it's directly connected with why the page came forth, I, I, I feel comfortable answer, uh, answering. Okay. Um, so I'm going to be honest, it was devastating. Um, I think that social media, technology, uh, cameras on phones, have brought forth a new level of um, connection with the Black trauma in a way that we had not had before. So, of course, we've seen horrific pictures of our ancestors being lynched, and we all know of, of the uh, civil rights movement, and we all know of, um, of someone who's gotten into um, uh, different things. We saw Rodney King, um, but I feel like technology and social media. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna use Trayvon Martin's mom as an example. So we heard it was because 
his mom would not let up on social media. And I'm not saying let up in a negative way. I'm saying like, I'm thankful for Miss Sabrina uh, Fullerton. I think her name is Fulton, if I recall, if I recall correctly. I'm thankful for Miss Sabrina for like not letting up because we wouldn't have known about it. So she kept posting on her social media and stuff. And she shared the hell out of the stuff pertaining to her baby, which she should have. And that's how we found out. We would, and 20 years ago, they would have been able to bury that story. They would have been able to bury it, that, you know, um, that he was murdered in that way. And because of social media, they couldn't bury it. So definitely, I feel like social media is, is good for stuff like that. But for people who are very empathic and very sensitive like myself, it's, it's devastating. It's devastating. So I actually have not seen the video of someone being murdered since Sandra Bland. And Sandra Bland, we didn't even see the video. We saw um, the precursor. We saw what led up to her getting arrested. Um, and so this, thank you, son. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, someone else. I appreciate you so much. the book <laughs> um so we saw the precursor and we saw her arguing with the cops and, and 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 them arguing with her and then we find out that she's dead so i feel like all of that stuff like it impacts people like me so much so i actually have not watched anything so even um uh with um george floyd's death I have not seen the full eight minutes and that's purposeful because it's self-care for myself. Um, I, it, it hurts, it hurts so badly. Um, and I never want to become numb to trauma. So, and it's not even just things particularly with black people. I don't want to see anyone die on camera. Same. That's not something Same. that I enjoy. That's not something that makes me happy. I don't want to see a sexual assault on camera. I don't want to see any of that. I'm, in fact, if any of that comes my way, I'm reporting the hell out of that. I'm reporting whoever posted it. I'm reporting anything that I'm reporting people that like the <laughs> If I'm being petty, like I'm I'm being serious because I don't think these these are not natural things that we should be watching. These are things that we should be reporting. These are things that we should be contacting authorities. These are things that we should be contacting media. We should not be watching them and 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 almost I feel like becoming like like this is the norm, you know? Um I feel like I gave you a lot and that you didn't even ask for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just doing stuff out there but yeah no it's good it's good and and I agree with you um I'm definitely I'm very empathic and uh I gave up watching the news I think about six or seven years ago yeah mm. so mm. I still see headlines and I still understand what's happening but I don't go into any detail I don't watch any videos so a hundred percent I feel that um so yeah so I mean you started off sharing your your poetry and um particularly yeah. around uh, you know expressing yourself around these incidents so kind of how did that start and then how did it grow from there right so I've been doing poetry since I was a tot um pretty much since I was able to pick up a pen and a pad I've been doing poetry I've, I did I've done shows um, I've had mentors who've poured into me who um, were like, hey, you know, put it, put your poetry on pretty paper and, and frame it so you can see it. I've had a lot of stuff. Um, I've had, even when I started doing short stories, I've had people who were like, wow, like, you, you know, you're talented. Like, let's, let's see what we can do. So I ended up um, doing my bachelor's in English. 
And um, so I have a bachelor's in English and I minored in theater. And so um, in terms of getting on stage and performing and writing and stuff, I'm, I'm good at all that. Um, I, from there, I decided to go into psychology. So my master's is in psychology, um, which is interesting because you would think that it's two different worlds, but I feel like I was doing healing work through the work through therapy. So um, just lots of healing work within my community. That's really cool. Yeah, and I, I mean, to me, it makes sense that, you know, a lot of those things are connected because self-expression is so important in terms of your mental well-being anyway. And then I think, you know, with healing, it becomes even more um, important. So how how was it for you going into uh, psychology and, and, and mental health being such an important thing for you? Do you feel like it's given you... Uh, so yeah, I know that for me growing up, mental health wasn't uh, well understood and it wasn't, you know, people didn't really know how to talk about it. And I found that now uh, in all of the learning that I've done, I'm now having these really nuanced and important conversations with people about mental health. And also when I'm interacting with people, if they're not behaving in a way that I expected them to, my first question is always, is everything okay? Rather than what you're doing is wrong. And I feel like that's such an important aspect of mental health. And uh, yeah, I'm just curious to hear about, uh, you know, what you learned doing your psychology masters uh, and how it's informed how you do things now with this new like learning and understanding. That is an excellent question. Um, it has changed my very being. It has changed exactly what you just said in terms of how I look at people. So my first thing is um, checking in. What's going on? Um, Where are you at right now? Where are you at? You know what I'm saying? Where are you at right here inside? And so, um, and even even down to my parenting and my interaction with um, others, I parent differently now. Um, I'm more um, kid focused, um, which I'm ashamed to say that I guess I wasn't before. You know what I'm saying? As much, but now I'm more like, okay, wait, what's going on? This is not your normal behavior, son. How can I help? Um, so I feel like to answer your question, we'd have to go back a few. Um, so I, um, I don't know if you're familiar with, with this post, but I had made a post um, last Mother's Day about my adoption journey. Right, no, I didn't um, see that one. So I was adopted. Um, I was adopted and there was a time where um, my mom was trying to for me, uh, me, and then a child after me. And so um, she was having a rough time with me. And now that we're older, we see that she probably should have put me in therapy. Uh, even something as amazing as being adopted into a loving family can still be traumatic for a child in terms of abandonment and just a huge life transition. So she did not, cause she, you know, it wasn't something, but it, but it wasn't something that, you know, was what people were doing at the time in the eighties. Right. And so what it did was I think about this stuff and the things that I deal with as an adult, I'll be 35 in July. And even that, even though I was, was adopted into an amazing family and, um, I, my mom is amazing and my sisters are awesome. I still deal with abandonment. 
um, there was a point in time where I was a ward of a ward of California. And so when I think about things like that, that makes me want to push more, um, push for more mental health resources within the community, particularly within my community. Um, the black community, I don't want to say frowns on mental health, but um, it's not at the forefront of a lot of people's minds because survival is first. So one might say that healthy mental health strategies and coping mechanisms is survival. Healthy coping mechanisms is survival, excuse me. But um, when you're just trying to, if you're just running strictly off survival, you're not thinking about tapping into healthy resources. You're thinking of getting from point A to point B. And so what we're finding in our community is there's a direct correlation to um, lack of mental health resources and people being able to self-soothe when they become adults, um, tap into healthy coping mechanisms such as um, mindfulness, meditation, um, communication, um, emotional awareness. All of those things are lacking in certain areas just because we don't have the resources. And this is, of course, is, I'm doing a uh, painting a broad picture. This is not every Black person, but um, in certain areas that are concentrated, possibly like probably in the hood and stuff like that, we need to tap into um, healthy resources and we just don't have it. Yeah, I hear that. And um, it's interesting. Obviously, um, I, I think that that's something that comes up um, a lot in, in lots of different ways and it can come up individually in lots of different uh, it brings to mind uh when I was a little bit younger I'm I'm not much younger than you in a couple of years and um I think it was in my early 20s my dad was trying to explain to my sister and I about getting a pension and to us this was like insane we were like you might as well be telling us to get a helicopter like we're trying to work out life and survive. And both of us at that time had um, untreated trauma. And we were like, you're talking about something that may never happen. And if it does happen, it's not going to be for another 45 or 50 years. And to, to us, we're thinking about this week, literally could not get into the headspace of this whole idea of pensions. I was like, that's, that's like a rich people problem, right? And he just he couldn't get he couldn't get that this was like he's like but you've grown up in my house and we're like but but that's very much your house like you know we've earned our own money from being teenagers like our life even though we've lived together has been very very different our priorities are different and like he just couldn't seem to get it and so I don't know about you Chai but whenever I see people uh privileged people being like why can't they just save some money <laughs> or why can't they just go and see a therapist if there's a problem I'm like you're, you live on another dimension literally you're living somewhere else that you think that it's that simple or that accessible and it's kind of maddening absolutely, absolutely. and then um you add intersections to that so like even think of someone who is is um in the disabled community um think of someone who's part of the queer community then these resources that that people are saying for us to easily obtain become scarcer and scarcer right 
And so when I think about stuff like this, it is absolutely uh, disheartening and exhausting to explain to those who have privilege um, that this is not, this is the way of the world right now. Um, and not everyone has access. And that's why I think I did like a whole post on access one time because I'm trying to explain to people like pe there are people who don't have access to, to basic things, water. Um, water is a huge thing. And I really feel like in terms of capitalism, water is used to keep people um, in line. Um, not just land, like water, having access to clean water absolutely is used as a tool of oppression, period period. And I didn't really realize how, like, like, honestly, because this is a whole nother podcast, but I can go on a rant about this. <laughs> um, but I didn't realize how, like, diabolical in terms of um, and even just right now in Sacramento, we have a huge um, unhoused um, population. Um, and people have been complaining about the tents, the tents, the tents. So, um, a few years ago, we, they were doing the budget for that year or whatever the period of time is the fiscal year for mental health. And they were like, all right, we're allotting, um, Sacramento. Um, it was something outlandish, like $2 million, right? $2 million for the capital of California <laughs> for a year for mental health resources is nothing. It was like a slap in the face. And I'm just like, you all are not taking it seriously. Don't complain about our unhoused population when a lot of them need mental health resources first. They need mental health resources and basic needs hand in hand. And so when I saw the amount that the city had proposed for the budget, it kind of clued me in on how this mental health is not taken seriously. Not taken seriously. Because the reason why we have so many unhoused is because of lack of mental health resources. And Sacramento, I don't know, this was a few years ago. I haven't checked in on it because I don't want to like get upset all the time. But the but I do remember because I was still in grad school, it was like three, four years ago. Um, and two of my classmates went and I'm like, two million dollars, that wouldn't even cover overhead. That's people's two million dollars is just the salaries. That's salary, that's not covering the actual resources. And and, and we hear that two million dollars, like, oh, that's a lot of money. But we're talking about like overhead costs, salaries. <laughs> for you know that people need so it's just this is what makes me want to pull more and push more and pour more into um the community because it's not taken seriously and we're wondering why we're having different things come up you're not the fact that people aren't connecting criminal activities to basic needs and mental health is outrageous outrageous the crime would absolutely go down if everyone's basic need was met and mental health, period. Yeah, that's always a really big thing that comes up for me is when um, people are talking about, oh, well, if you like if you've committed a crime, then you go to prison and then that's just the consequence. And I'm like. But you if you if, if that's the story and you're happy with that and, and you just think, oh, this is just how it goes, you're never asking why. Why did they end up at that point? And like, okay. do is it is it simply just a choice? Are the, is the only reason you're not in prison because 
you decided not to commit a crime? Is it literally just because you've been sat in your living room this whole time thinking, I could commit a crime, but I'm going to watch TV instead? You know, in your mind, is it really that simple that you think that, you know, um, when I was like 20, 21, I had a friend who was black. He was adopted by a white couple who had no understanding of what his individual needs were going to be. And uh, he ended up with a drug problem. And he then turned to... Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. The Zoom, the Zoom broke up. It so did. I literally, it cut out at the point where you said when I was 20, 21, okay. I had a friend. Let me, I'm just going to put, uh, I'm just going to switch over my internet. I'm sorry about this. Um, okay. Just because it's wobbling a bit. No worries. Thank you. Oh, are we back? I think it's good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Thanks. Okay. Um, yeah. So when I was about 21, I had this friend. Uh, he was black. He was adopted by two white parents who didn't really have an understanding of what his individual needs would be and particularly no understanding of what it would be for him to grow up in a white community. I, I think literally he and his adopted sister were the only black people that he grew up with, you know, just hit himself and his sister. Um, and I watched him, you know, struggle with uh, uh, a heroin addiction. And, you know, and when he was younger, he'd been in prison for possession of class A drugs with intent to supply. I think he'd been in twice for something like that. And it was so obvious to me that here was a, a really bright, intelligent guy who had just had shit luck, nobody looking out for him, no help, no assistance, severe untreated trauma. And, you know, the majority of the time I spent with him, he was so caring and lovely and very nurturing. And I really feel like people need, like the general public and particularly privileged people need to really know people in prison and in these situations because I don't think they would be able to hold on to these really bizarre ideas of what what it means to be a criminal and why you end up there because I mean for sure you you occasionally come across somebody who uh as you know as a child for some reason thought about you know kicking the family dog and then it just got worse but I mean on average we're talking about average people who who've had a shit time like how how do you, you get of... sorry no go ahead i'm sorry yeah so i was i was just curious chai about how you how you address those sorts of things because obviously running a facebook page is an adventure in itself uh 
but you know on the occasions that you're having good interactions where you're educating people like how how do you end up talking about those things what do you explain and what do you tell them well real quick um and i saw i'm sorry interrupting you i have a habit of doing that because i get excited it's okay um but when you think of class and hierarchy it's almost like your friend um and people like him um need are meant to exist to um, uh, absorb people of their feelings of remorse um, in terms of their lifestyle, if that makes sense. Um, so for instance, like your friend is necessary. Um, everything that he's gone through, everything that's happened to them, him is necessary for certain people to feel better about their own lives. Um, they're able to say, at least I'm not like him, or then they'll come up with justifications where like, well, if he hadn't done this, it, this wouldn't have happened. He was adopted into a good family. Why didn't he turn out better? There's so many just different things like that kind of comes down. And I always think about stuff like that. Like people don't understand that this stuff is strategic. Um, your friend is absolutely a part of whatever systemic um, measures that UK has in place. I don't know the intricacies, but I can say um, for Black men in the United States, there is absolutely 1 million percent a system that was set up for Black men to uh, fail, for Black people to fail. And sometimes people are just like, that's, that's overgeneralization, that doesn't happen. And then I tell people to Google something called redlining. Redlining was um, something, oh, okay, so you, you know what that is, okay. I didn't know if they have that in the UK and, or, or have something like that, but I know out here, um, for the purpose of those who are listening, you, um, excuse me, redlining is something where, um, the best way to describe it is Black people were trying to buy houses in better neighborhoods so that they can gain access to just um, nicer, nice, nicer housing, excuse me. Um, uh, different things in terms of zoning, um, schools, um, just, just better neighborhoods than, that, that, than they had been afforded to. And what happened was laws were put into place so that Black people could not buy um, houses in white neighborhoods. That's the gist of what it is. It's, more, it's a little bit more intricate than that. But sometimes I think of stuff like that and I'm like, some of this stuff in terms of racism is like downright diabolical, you know? Like, it's not even just because what happens is, okay, then the kid doesn't go to a good school. Um, then they become an adult and, and get a shit job. And then from there, um, their shit job, then um, the economy starts tanking and then they lose their job. Okay, so then they have a family support now. So what do they do then? Um, they might start looking at unsavory sources of money. And it's easy for people to say, what, just get another job. But what if there's no job available? Okay, well, you just keep looking, but your children are hungry. You're, you're about to lose, um, lose your house. You're, there's so, it's so intricate in terms of how things were set up. And it all started from like one thing in terms of systemic racism. It's so deep. It's so diabolical. Yeah, definitely. And um, I, I only learned about redlining recently and about this whole, whole um, you know, idea that it, certain neighborhoods would never be... Uh, they would never be allowed to get a mortgage and therefore uh, those families and particularly families in kind of more ghettoized areas would never be able to, um, you know, inherit like generational wealth. And that's why 
yeah. you know, and, and by the time yeah. you, you're allowed to accumulate this money, I mean, this rent, everyone has to pay rent or mortgage or something unless you have been given a house or won the lottery or something. Um, you know, so to me, it, it seems like so obvious that if one of the biggest outgoings of your entire life, financially speaking, is where you live, the building that you live in, and you're not allowed to accumulate that and you're giving that to somebody else and that's happening generation right. after generation you know mm -hmm. it makes perfect sense to me that 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 is going to have an enormous knock-on effect i mean i think even now about mm -hmm. the difference um of my friends whose parents have a mortgage versus those who don't and i'm talking about just you know white people who've had access to fairly good schools and even the difference right. for them is is so obvious and so measurable. Um, and I've had friends in my lifetime who have had the opportunity, their family have had the opportunity in the time that I've known them to buy their own house. And what a difference that has made to their quality of living has just been like, yeah. I've got chills as I say that. Um, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Do you get a lot of um, trolls really on your... It just comes down. Sorry. <laughs> you oh, go. Sorry. No, you go, you go. It comes down. I, I was just going to say that it, it it literally comes down to access. That is the word of the year. Um, I didn't even realize how many things were barred by access. Even I was um, speaking to a friend of mine. Um, it's a lesbian couple. And even just things in terms of healthcare, there's things that are barred and access. And I'm just like, things I don't even think of. I'm queer, but I'm, I'm married to a man. And so even just what's afforded to us as a straight presenting couple, I, if things, when it comes to access, like literally the things that you don't even think of, we don't have to think about healthcare and signing different things. We don't have to think about um, birth certificate stuff, you know, uh, with kids and stuff. He just, he was able to sign it without any, any question. Um, so I always think about access now um, when people were telling me like, okay, you know, I've had a tough time with this and stuff without like, like jumping to conclusions, like, well, why haven't you, why, you know, now I think of, okay, what are some things that this person has been like barred from in terms of access? I try to like think like that now because I, the world is showing that they're not accepting. Um, I had, um, I always tell this story, one of my best friends um, was part of a lawsuit. Um, and when I always when I tell people that racism is so systemic and diabolical, I need people to understand like it's right here, like it's not far away. So basically, she belongs to a bank, and the bank um, was not giving loans out to black people and brown people, and they were trying to figure out like how how are they doing this? So they did they started investing investigating excuse, excuse me, and they found out that they were using people's um, zip codes. Um, do you all have zip codes out there? Oh, okay. Just want to make sure. I'm probably asking silly questions. I just want to make sure. Um, so they were using people's zip codes um, to deny loans. So basically, if they ran your zip code and saw that you lived in the hood, you were denied a loan automatically. And so we, my uh, best friend was part of this class action suit. She ended up getting a tiny bit of money, but it was so many people. Um, and so I think about that sometimes because it's like, 
when we talk about systemic racism and it being diabolical, like, like you don't want poor people to have stuff. You don't want poor black people to have stuff. You don't want poor. It's like the intersections then, because it's not even just about you being poor now. It's being poor and black, um, being poor and black, brown, being poor, black, brown, and disabled. Like it's so many things that are like, that are connected, but it all comes down to good old fashioned racism. It's just, it's ridiculous. Um, I think you were about to ask a question pertaining to trolls. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I have, I have, a, we do get a lot of trolls. It's, um, I have an admin now and her name's Asia and she's like amazing. And it's interesting because people are like, dang, Asia's like really hardcore, but it's actually me who would come and like ban someone hella fast. I'm not dealing with it. I deal with, with a lot of stuff on a daily basis. Um, I teach at a college. Um, I'm a therapist. I work two different jobs with two different companies. Um, and this is not even including running the page and stuff like that. I'm a mom. Um, I'm a wife. What it looked like me arguing with you on the internet over some goofy shit. I'm not doing it. Mm-mm. I'm yeah. not. And so, so we, it's interesting because I was just my, my daughter, um, I have a 12 year old daughter and she wanted to know, she's like, do you ban people? Out? I'm like, yeah. So we went through and we looked at all the people I banned and she's like, mom, this is ridiculous. I'm like, sweetheart, mommy's not, do- I'm not doing it. I'm not, and, it's, and Asia will at least give someone a chance to clarify themselves. I won't. Mental, he- mental health, like self-care. I'm not doing it. If you're, if, if sometimes it's like a point of clarity, like someone's really asking a question and it might come off wrong. And so I don't mind stuff like that, like, you know, points of clarity. But if it's clear that you're trolling, uh-uh. you get banned you're not you're not here to learn you're not here to be educated you're not here to um pour into this community that's been created on this page you're literally here to cause chaos so i'm gonna chaotically ban your ass like i'm not doing it <laughs> yeah i have to say I've, I've gotten so much quicker at that and you know i i occasionally find somebody who's saying something with such positive intent but the way they've said it is an absolute dumpster fire and you know mm-hmm. i might say like I see the intent behind what you've said is so pure. It's so lovely. Uh, however, it's really important for me to tell you that some of the phrases you've used here, like this one's racist, this one's homophobic. So maybe like your your message would come across better if those were a little bit more informed, you know. And sometimes you get people like, oh, I can't believe it landed so badly. I'm so sorry. Like, how can I say this in the future? And I'm like, this is a beautiful moment. And then you get other yeah. people like, who are like, yeah. I said what I said, how I say it. If you don't like it, you can yeah. fuck off. And I'm like, okay, thank you for making that clear. And then it's ban and delete. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And you know the difference. Yeah. And even the first person that you said, I've had people who said stuff, and um and even I'll come at them with love because I saw I see what you're trying to say you know what I'm saying um I, I think I posted something about um Dwayne Wade's daughter um Zaya and she's so she's so just amazing she's so gorgeous she's she's baby black girl magic well I had someone who um in their efforts to uplift her they had said something that was slightly transphobic in terms of like, oh, her skin is this. And I'm like, okay, but let's remember like the level of, 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 of your skin and, 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 and it being better, supposed to be better than a trans, a trans woman or in this case, little baby trans girl. Like that's the, I don't know why in your head you think that your skin is supposed to be clear or, or better. Or, you know, it was just, it was odd. So 
I gently um, corrected them because I saw that they were tr- what they were trying to do. And when I did, they they took it really well. They were like, oh, I didn't even realize that's how it came off. Like, like, and assuming that I'm supposed to have better skin than a trans woman. Okay, my bad, you know. And that's, I'm like, this is a teachable moment and it's been taught, right? That's the, the you know. But I've had some people who are like, you, you see, I was trying to uplift the trans community and you just messed things up. How did I mess things up by, by offering a point of clarity, you know? And so I love, so you weren't trying to uplift the trans community if this is how you're going to act when you're, when you're gently, and I'm usually pretty gentle in terms of correction. When I see that someone, you know, especially if it's like a longtime follower, I, 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 um, I recognize at least about a hundred names, <laughs> Um, and so like when I see he's a long time follower, I'm like, okay, I see what they're trying to say and stuff. And so I'll gently correct them and stuff, but no, like the, you're, like you said with the other person, like telling me to fuck off be, because you're in the wrong, ah, ban and delete. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at the beginning, I think literally the first couple of years that I had my page, uh, people would come on and I'd get into conversations that would have me like over the span of a week that would have me anxious and then when people were like my friends were like oh hey how's how's it going I'd be like oh god there's this right dickhead on my page and they said this and then I said that and I look back at that like man you're never going to get that time back you should have just cut and run I haven't looked at my ban list (laughs) like the whole time there literally must be thousands of people on that list yes literally for real for real I you know honestly like you you can usually tell within the first it's interesting because it's like you don't think that there's a tone in terms of writing but there is and you can tell within the first few sentences the first first few words usually if someone's intentions are pure um and most of the time most of the people on my page and stuff they usually are chill they just don't know the wording um, and they're trying, they're trying because they want to be more inclusive. I've had people hit me up and was all like, you know, that po- that post that you made about um, Zaya Wade, I-, I thank you. I have a little cousin um, and she's, you know, um, uh, talked to the family about how she feels she's trans and um, your page is really helped and stuff. And I'm like, well, good. You know, I said, please. And I'll end it like, please nurture her. Please let her know that if there's other family members who are being hurtful, that you're a safe place. And then I end it like that. But it's, it's interesting that a lot of people are there to learn. A lot of people do follow to learn. Because most people, if they're not there to learn, they just, oh, this is not the page for me, you know? Um, I do have a few active trolls. I feel like they switch pages sometimes. Um, so I've been doing my best, between me and Asia, been doing our best to ban. And I know that there's active trolls on my page because they, um, they report shit. They'll report um, something... Um, usually race related a lot of people can't hold it with conversations about race i think a lot of people think that it um i'm making stuff out to be worse than it is that's oh no black people that's still not happening that sounds like this and i'm like guys i'm posting a a reputable article (laughs) like this really happened there was a um young man who had gotten um lynched in the la county area um a few months back and they're calling it um death by suicide but i'm like nope Mm-mm. nope he, no he did not do it in a in a public place in a in a field and uh, I said no and so um I got you know this is the stuff that people push back on you're that was that was, he, he says that he um died by suicide and I'm like but he didn't you all he didn't like it, there's no there's that that no Mm-mm. literally this, today. And this is the type 
sorry. I was just going to say, literally today, I saw a post. I don't think it was on your page, but it was on one of the, the Black-owned pages that I follow. And there were all these Black people kind of joking, kind of not, being like, hey, just so you know, if you ever find me dead anywhere, it, it wasn't suicide. Like, I don't feel that way. I would never do that. Um, I wouldn't ever write a, a note, like, take this as my statement, that that would never be me. And they were kind of joking about it, but I was like you know it's, it's it's gallows humor when you're dealing with something that, that's this awful right so you know obviously right. you see that kind of humor as a coping mechanism but I was like absolutely how awful that somebody has to say like if you ever find me dead I didn't do it to myself like that that hit me we pretty hard a lot. right we did that a lot after Sandra Bland. Um, that was the first time I felt like I started seeing a lot of those posts. But you're right, though. It is absolutely gallows humor. Um, and honestly, Black people in comedy and coping in horrific times go hand in hand. And it's interesting because you'll see a post like, man, Black people can never take shit seriously because there's literally nothing we can do to change it. So we and this goes into coping and this goes into us having access and stuff because some stuff is like okay guys guys we have to be serious about that nope no nope, someone makes a joke you know um and i it's it's coping we don't have all of the help of the coping um mechanisms well we do it's inside of us we haven't had um someone really show us how to cope with certain things and so laughing about it has been very helpful and then honestly some people feel like, what's the point? It's going to happen again. We're going to have another police-involved shooting. We're going to have another little Black kid get shot by his homeboys on the street. You know what I'm saying? We don't have access. We don't have resources. These things are going to keep happening. So what's the point? Let me just make a joke about it. And honestly, I can't tell someone how to cope. I can try to show them to the people that I work with and my posts and stuff, but I get it. I get it. It's, it's, it's very, very bleak. Um, it's a very bleak world for those who don't have access to certain tools. Yeah, I get that. How how do you think that things are going to change moving forward? Like, how how can we make that change as a community of people who are empathetic and care about each other? Um. So I feel like one of the things we need to do is start challenging. Uh, our leaders around us, and I'm not just talking about like church leaders and stuff like that, I'm talking about political leaders, those who are like within our community, aldermen, council members, stuff like that, um, so that they can take it up the chain. Because I feel, and we need to start attending these meetings. Um, and this is even me talking to myself, because I know my like my schedule is wildly, ridiculously full all the time. But even myself, like attending these council meetings, um, uh, we need to start writing our politicians and, uh, and the people that represent our neighborhoods. Um, because some of this stuff is directly coming from just like neighborhood, like not having neighborhoods, excuse me, not having these resources. So for example, one of the hoods out here is Oak Park. Um, Oak Park is a notorious hood is being just currently being gentrified right now, which is infuriating because it's pushing black people who've lived in Oak Park for years out of their home. But one of the things with Oak Park also in the midst of being gentrified 
there's a food desert. There was one store that really was like the food source for a lot of people. And I think, I think actually it was called like food source or food, something like that. And it closed down last year, if I recall correctly. And now is leaving this hood, this already, this already hood area in a food desert. And I think about stuff like this in terms of systemic stuff. So now people who were already having a hard time even getting to that food source now have to find, and it's like a whole area. I, I wouldn't even know how much like Oak Park, what, how, how much of Sacramento it spans, but it's a huge neighborhood. It's a huge area. It's, I wouldn't even call it a neighborhood. It's like an area. And for them to not have a, a, a place where people can get healthy food um, and anything else that they need is absolutely ridiculous. Um, so that's a that's a portion in terms of resource, making sure, listen, I've been saying this for a few years and this is nothing new. I'm pretty sure that other like people who are like real ass leaders and shit like that have said this forever. But I can say this just from the people that I worked with. If everyone's basic needs were met, crime will go down, go down drastically. Mental health would um, healthy mental health would increase. Um, if I'm even saying that word right, I was like worded weird. Um, um, we would see an influx in terms of um, probably jobs. Um, we would see an influx and just like just so many things just from people having basic needs. And when I say, I say basic needs, there's people who don't even have soap to wash their body. Like I'm not I'm not just saying basic needs in terms of just like the main thing like water and stuff. Like even just other things like toothbrush, pads you know, um, for those who ministrate, like these are all things that people don't think about when I say basic needs. If everyone had access to all of this stuff, then it would be a huge shift in the dynamic in terms of crime. But the problem is crime pays, poverty pays. Um, yeah, it's weird to say that, but poverty pays. Like people get more money from, from poor people than, than you would even think. I was just reading a thread about someone when it came to them um, paying a ticket, it was something like, I didn't have the money to pay the ticket. So then the ticket increased and then I got a penalty and then I got this. And then like, it all started with a small ticket that I just didn't have the money to pay because I'm poor. It's like, I'm not a rich person. I couldn't just go and pay it when I had, you know, she said, even when I got paid, those bills went to my kids, those bills went to rent and stuff like that. And so she did like a breakdown of how much it costs. Like at the end, she ended up like, it was like thousands of dollars. Like it became something really ridiculous. And in my head, I'm like this, they're, they're literally capitalizing off of poor people. They're, they're, they're getting money off of poor people. So it's like poverty pays, poverty pays those who are in power. Um, so that's why I don't, I honestly, to answer your question, it's like a roundabout ass way of answering it. I don't see it shifting until we start holding these leaders accountable who are getting paid off the misery of others. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think restructuring as well, because, um, you know, I've been in the coaching industry for a few years now and um, it's not quite the same as the mental health thing. And you particularly end up with a lot of cisgender, heterosexual, white people talking about how to make the world a better place but there's no discussion there's no acknowledgement of like privilege or um intersectional anything and you know you you look at people like tony robbins who's like i'm gonna i'm you know in in a year i'm gonna feed a million americans or something 
And I'm like, fucking, that's great, Tony. It's great that you've bought people dinner. But how about restructuring the whole of the fucking country? Like, you are powerful and you're fucking, he's so rich. He's absolutely minted. And, you know, he, he has a, a lot of influence. He knows a lot of people. And and he's an NLP like master or whatever. Like he's got a lot of tools at his disposal. His disposal, but I don't see that he's taking part in any conversations around eradicating poverty or making sure that you know white saviors like him are never going to be needed again. You know, he might feel great about feeding poor people. But he's, as far as I'm concerned or aware, he's not doing anything about making sure that poor people are no longer poor and that the system can change, you there know. You and 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 they That's say it. as well, like you can you can win the lottery, like anybody could win the lottery. But if you're not used to having money, you actually don't know how to keep that money, how to grow that money, what to do with it. You'll often not be around other people who can help you either. And they say that even if you divided the world's money equally between literally everybody, I think it's within like a few years, maybe five or 10 years max, all of that money would go back to exactly where it is now because of the way that the world and, and systems are set up. And every time that, yeah, I just, every time I hear, hear these sorts of conversations where like, oh, but we're doing this to help these people. We've, we've donated these things. I'm like, that is, that is, as you Americans would say, a band aid for the situation. Or as we would say in England, a plaster. Exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like that, a plaster. Because yeah. that's, that's a good one because at the end of the day, the hole is still there, right? We just yeah. kind of put a little yeah. veil of something over it um that's exactly it we're not we're not um finding the root of the problem we're not we're it's absolutely a band-aid or a plaster um I, I actually um it's always out here and i'm not sure if it's the same goodwill foolery um out there around the holidays but the holidays really shows people shows who people are so you have people who are giving out turkeys um, and turkeys is like the driest meat ever. Just FYI, it's just dry as hell. I don't know if you feel the same way, um, but so you have yes. people who are giving out turkeys. Yeah, it's a dry ass meat. <laughs> um, you have people giving out turkeys. You have people who are giving out um, toys for kids um, who are in need, all of which is awesome. You know what I'm saying? It's awesome that people are going to have a, a big ass dry ass turkey to eat off for a few days. And it's awesome that kids who don't have gifts um are able to have you know gifts and stuff but you're right though this it even still comes out uh, down to it why aren't the parents able to buy gifts oh one parent is in jail why is that parent in jail they were selling they were selling drugs why were they selling drugs so when we get down to the root they were selling drugs to, because they couldn't find work and they're trying to feed their family so it's like all of this so now you have some person a goodwill person a rich person Oh, I'm going to give gifts and stuff. That's a tax write-off. You know what I'm saying? So now your needs are met in terms of the tax write-off and these kids have toys, but they don't have their dad. I, I bet you any child, you put, you ask any child right now who has a dad who was locked up, would they rather have presents for Christmas or would they rather have their dad? They're going to say without a doubt, their father, they're going to say they they want their dad. So for me, it's like, 
it's like you said, it's the plaster of the situation. It, what, what, what are we covering up? Because I feel like all of this goodwill and stuff, like the holiday season, it will, it, people show, they show what they're really doing. Um, one organization, which I thought was awesome, paid the bail for all of the moms to get out um, for the holidays two years ago. It wasn't in Sacramento. And that was all like, that's what the fuck I'm talking about. You, you talk to me about shit like that. That's that. I was over here like, yes, because that organization did it right. These kids don't want presents. You think a kid, if I got locked up right now, my kids are going to want me, period. And so that shows me. But this is a this is a grassroots organization. Other organizations is like this. This is what this is what we need versus, you know, what I'm saying we need parents out of prison. We need to be looking at their sentence statistically in the United States, at least, um, it's either the first or the second reason that women are locked up is because of domestic violence. They kill their abusers. So now this mom who's been living with an abusive boyfriend, abusive husband, abusive anything. Okay. They murder their abuser because they're sick of it. They're sitting, getting, you know, getting beat up on. And now they're in prison for life. Where are we at with this? Cause it's not, and this is not me saying that a murderer should go free. But is prison the way? Is prison the way to solve this? I mean, it, these are all the things. Like, I really feel like mental health would be the way. And I'm not going to say I'm applauding them for killing their abuser. What I'm saying is, as a DV survivor, I understand it. One. And then on the mental health side, I understand it as well. Why are we providing resources then? Why can't we have an entity where they are at getting mental health resources so that they can deal with the trauma of murdering their abuser? Like, it's just... It's, these are the things that, that where my mind goes in terms of like access and resources and stuff like that. And it comes down to people not caring. A, they make more money off of a mom who killed her, killed her abuser being in jail for life than they would with a mom going through a program or a process where they get help and aid with the trauma and us making sure like, hey, you can't go out and kill every abuser now. You know what I'm saying? Let's give you the healthy tools. Let's, you, you know, um, whatever process, maybe six months or whatever for them to heal and, and go out and just, you know, uh, um, contribute to their family and stuff like that versus them being in prison. It's, it's, they're not going to make money off of that. Yeah. I hear that. And I think, you know, I've, I've talked to other guests and other people doing sort of your and, and my type of work and, I mean, I think the prison system in and of itself is a is another conversation and actually have a podcast Ooh. episode coming out specifically about the um the prison system. Um but yeah, it's such an undertaking and I really do hope you know, I know that people say things about social media like, oh, you shouldn't be on social media for too long and uh, you know, you shouldn't you should be careful about getting too much gratification or validation with your selfies. And I'm like, well, yes. But I think one of the things that it does do is that to some extent, it does level the playing field so that we can start to have these conversations and read people's stories and start to think, actually, I've read this person's story and this challenge is an, an idea that I had. The f and that's the first story that they read. But by the time they've read 100, I'm convinced that they will then be like, my preconception was absolute bullshit. 
And I don't think that it takes too much potentially going from that ignorant place of having these sort of misunderstandings to being like, I see it now. I think it's it's that small of a gap and, and that gives me hope. And I know that things are still bad. And, you know, we've like in the US literally, um, was it today or yesterday? There was there was a, another shooting of a young black guy. Um, yes. And but it's yeah. but it's changing and, and it's not changing fast enough. And it is going to cost a lot of lives in the meantime. Um but I, I really hope that more people can get involved and be like, yeah, it, it, it's going to be hard work. But I feel like the same things, the same rights that we, we're fighting for, for ourselves or our own communities, are actually the same rights that could be taken away from anyone for any number of different reasons. And, you know, if we're not making sure, if we wanted to pitch this to those who are a bit more self-centred, uh, we might sort of win them over with this idea that like if if our rights of like this can be taken then potentially yours could too but pr providing that this is completely protected among everyone regardless of whatever demographics they belong to that also ensures your safety then maybe <laughs> maybe we could we could get people to see it for, but I don't know and I also, I don't know what you think, Chai, but I also wonder if people are really resistant to this idea that we're, some of us are having a very different experience because they're threatened by the idea that it's not all unicorns and, you know, butterflies and all that shit. <laughs> I wonder if there's too no, much. they know. Do you think all the time? I think, I, I think they know. I think that they know. And I think like, I think that they, like I said before, they need us. They need, they need people who are, it's, 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 it's a hierarchy. Mm. It's class and hierarchy. There needs to be those below, because then how would you be upper class if there's, those, if there's no one below you? Um, and I know like this is going to go into communism. I'm not saying full-ass communism. What I'm trying to say is that even just affording people like the tools they need for survival would, in some people, mind be taking away from them think about it when um at least out here when uh, there's a city that's going to do a pride parade for the first time i'm really proud of them it's a little tiny city in california called lodi a lot of people have been very welcoming of it but you know there's a lot of people who are opposed to it but you're straight you're hetero nothing is being taken away from you but in their mind they have they have equated that giving them a parade, not, and they're not even giving it. You're not even, you're just, you're just complaining online. But they have equated that giving them a parade is somehow taking away from their cis hetero rights, which is absolutely ridiculous because they're literally doing a parade um, for those who have never had a parade in that area. And in their mind, this is what, and it's, and that's, and this is a system. And this is, like I said, when I talk about systemic stuff, this is purposeful. The way that they were able to um, convince poor white farmers and sharecroppers to be as racist as plantation owners was to let them know that blacks were taking something away from them. So there are people, 
So it's interesting because a lot of people always think that every white person um, owned slaves. I always I said, no, slaves were expensive. Slavery was exp- it was expensive. They had to house, they had to, you know. So only really wealthy people owned, you know, um, enslaved uh, black people. But they were able to get poor white people to be a part of the plantation in terms of overseeing. They were able to get church-going poor white people to be a part of the political agenda. Um, they were able to get that because they were con- they convinced them that something was being taken away from them. What does that sound like now? If it doesn't sound like a Trump supporter, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If, and and um, there's a quote from some leader, I'd probably find it online, but they said, if you're able to convince like the poorest white man or something, basically it's saying if you're able to convince the poorest white man that something's being taken away from them, then you have got someone who will be uh, oppress others. It, it, they, they worded it differently. I feel like some of this is me, but it was the, that was the gist of it. And that quote stays with me. It lives in my head rent-free because I always think about that quote, just being able to convince just someone, let's not even just say poor white people, even just someone that they're being, that something is being taken away from them will cause them to turn on whoever that person is. You know what I'm saying? And that is what we're seeing. That's what we saw with Trump supporters. He ran mm-hmm. his entire platform off of talking about Mexicans um, and, and people from um, South America taking something away from them. So it's just, I really feel like this is how people have been able to get other people on board of oppressing. And then you got these rich people who are sitting back just like, okay, did my job. Like not even know that like you're being used as a tool. Mm-hmm. Trump, I always say like when I, when I would see Trump, supporters the ones who are from rural areas and stuff trump wouldn't even sit down and have a beer with you he wouldn't even he would never even sit down at the same table as you he might shake your hand at a rally but in terms of his personal time he spends it with other rich people he absolutely spends his time with other rich people he's not worried about you (laughs) like so i think about this stuff like you know just in terms of people and how they vote against their best interests they 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 um, get on platforms and talk about how much they are upset about stuff because they feel like something from me is being taken away. There, you are hoarding something from me. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I hear you, and uh, that's a that's a nugget of wisdom right there, Chai. Thank you for sharing. Absolutely. So. Before we finish today, uh, I wanted to ask you, Chai, about your book. Tell us about your book. And also, I'm yeah. I'm fascinated with the whole process of writing and publishing a book because it's some it's a dream of mine. And uh, yeah, just go for it. Tell me tell me everything. Um, okay, so um, I wrote this while I was in grad school. Um, the book is called Journey to Ghana and Other Stories. I'll hold it up right here, and. Um, it's literally about a post-apocalyptic world um, with superhumans and it's surrounding um, it's five stories and all of them have superhumans in them. Um, and then there's, there's, there's the book's namesake and that's kind of nestled in the middle of the book. Um, so journey to Ghana is about a mom, a single parent mom who is traveling across the United States um, to catch a boat where humans and metahumans are living in, um, for free in Ghana. So she's in the United States. And so um, I wrote this book. So I was raised super like sci-fi. My mom's a Trekkie, um, loves Star Trek, loves all that stuff. And so I've been raised in a household of just like, just 
phenomenal literature, phenomenal movies and stuff. Cause my mom is just really unique in that way. Um, she introduced me to a um, woman named Octavia E. Butler, um, who is, who was a science fiction writer. She's passed. I got to meet her in person um, and get a, and get a book signed when I was 19, many years ago. And so um that really started it. I should, when I think about this though, I should have been wrote a book. Like I've always had different things swirling around in my head, um, sci-fi stuff, fan, sci-fi fantasy stuff. And I just have yet to write it down. So a few years ago in grad school, I was like, I need to do something self-care. So it started as a self-care pro- uh, project, just writing. Some days I would write pages, some days just one page, some days just a line. But I'm like, every day you have to write something. So I was like midway through my last year of grad school and I'm like, this is looking like something. (laughs) This looks like a book. And so I started reaching out to some publishing companies and I started looking at self-publishing, but nothing was really uh, meeting my needs. So I put it out on um, Facebook to, hey, you know, I would really love to publish with a black owned publishing company. And um, someone hooked me up to Vital Narrative and um they were actually past their point of um, accepting books um, because they have a deadline, like they do two deadlines each year. And I just missed the deadline by like a week or two. And, um, but he decided to take my book because it was sci-fi. He's like, we don't have any other sci-fi authors on here. So we're going to, you know, (laughs) I'll take it. And so um, it was, it was awesome because he, he, um, Greg, uh, he sat down, he read the book and he was just like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm going to, we, we gotta, we gotta connect. We gotta, <laughs> we gotta make sure that I, you know, I get this book published and stuff like that. And so we just went from there and he made the process really simple. Um, we, we, he edited it. Um, he, um, he was just, he was just awesome. The whole process, the whole process is really awesome. And, um, that's that yeah that's pretty much it so june 22nd is octavia e butler's birthday and that's when i published it so june 22nd will be um and it's my grandma's birthday too um it will be um one year one year with journey to ghana and it is honestly my baby (laughs) i feel like it's one of my kids (laughs) yeah i can understand that i think i would feel that way about writing a book and it is such a I think I think anything that you create that that's had hours poured into it, and you know you've got this big vision, and you chip away at it constantly. I said to a friend yesterday, I said, "I'm really near the end of recording for season three of my podcast, and this season I was like, I'm going to record everything first and then release." And um, you know, I was like, "I'm so near the end," I've, and and the amount of amazing people, including yourself, Chai, who I've got to speak to for this uh, season has been absolutely amazing and you know we're only kind of in the you know right this second we're just getting towards the end of recording and then it's into production and this is such a uh, a lot of energy and like love and everything that goes into it and she said oh do you think that you're going to do a season four and I was like don't ask me that now (laughs) you know like and I said to her she's like oh why I said I said, imagine, imagine that all of these interviews I'm doing is like being pregnant. You're getting bigger and bigger and heavier and more tired. And you've had all these different things. And 
you know, everyone knows it's coming, but it's not being birthed yet. But I'm walking, well, I'm working towards it. Like, you know, labor is imminent. And then all the really big hard work goes into this, this last part. And then, you know, then, and then it's birthed into the world. I said to her, like, I'm at that point in, in the part of the, the creation of what I'm doing. You know, it's like if you'd yeah. ask somebody when they're about to give birth to their child, like, oh, do you think you're going to have another one? It's like, let me give me a couple of years. <laughs> well, maybe not years in my case, but, you know, so, yeah, I, I and really it, it happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I really understand that. I think with a book, you know, I've met loads of people and uh, who've put so much effort into writing their book. And when people say you're going to do another one just as they're celebrating this first one. I'm like, you can't say that to people. <laughs> you can't say that. A one hundred percent. Yeah, let them let them celebrate and have their moment. Don't don't even enter it into their mind that that there might be this process to go through again because for some people it's just way too much and one is enough. And this question, I've noticed, Chai. I don't know if you think the same. Comes from people who've never even written a blog, let alone a fucking book. <laughs> You're so right. You're you. When I said you are spot on, I'm listening to you and I'm laughing because I've had both happen. I've had someone after I just had a baby. I just actually had a baby seven months ago, and so I've had people even recently was like, "Are you all?" And I'm like, "What? Are we thinking about what? Are we thinking about what? Because you better not say, are we thinking about another baby?' And we have a whole baby downstairs." And two other children. And I'm just sitting there like, are you serious? But I've also had people when it comes to um, my book ask, like, when's the next one coming out? And I'm like, you guys, like, guys, it, it took me forever. It took, like, please don't, can we, like, like you said, can we live in this moment? Can this, can we sit in this moment? Let's sit in this moment. I wrote a book. Let's sit in this moment. Yeah. So I'm laughing. I'm cracking up because I've had both happen where I'm just sitting back like you're absolutely wild right now. <laughs> yeah. We should take those people absolutely. and get do you know what a few years ago I did um boxing uh, over here there's a, an organization called Ultra White Collar Boxing UWCB and they take like just average people myself included um, they train you for eight weeks to box and then they stick you in a ring in front of a, a thousand people. So I did that twice. <laughs> oh my God. I loved it. I Tell loved me it. about it. Yeah, it was amazing. I went, I went because I wanted, first of all, I wanted to get fit and quickly because I don't like a long burn. I like to just get things out of the way. And secondly, to deal with my fear of confrontation because I was really, really scared. And actually, a lot of my fear was that I was scared that if I allowed myself to ever be angry, I wouldn't know how to control it or or I would do something mm. that I, did, I later regretted. It all ended up being great, actually, really positive experience. Um, but I wonder if those people who ask those questions like, are you going to write another book? Or are you going to have another kid? Like immediately after doing it, we should send them to go and do this boxing. They, they train for eight weeks. They get stuck, <laughs> stuck in a ring, getting the shit smashed out of them by another amateur who's trying just as desperately not to lose. And straight afterwards, when they're sweaty and their and their head is drooping because they're that tired, we go, "Do you, do you fancy doing another one of these?" <laughs> 
just for the pure I enjoyment. No, seriously, one, I want to do this actually because that sounds amazing. Yeah. And then two, absolutely. Because when they're sitting there looking at you like, I, I barely survived, then they'll know exactly. <laughs> exactly. You barely survived. Yeah. That's exactly what it sounds like when you are asking me for something after I have done such a big feat. Yes. Like, that's wild. Yeah, yeah. and I think that sounds a- awesome, though. I'm really interested. Yeah, it was it was lovely. And do you know what? It was interesting because after my, I'd done my first eight weeks and then my fight mm-hmm. and then the club where I trained, because it's all over the country, the club where I trained said, are you going to join us? We'll give you uh, a deal on membership for everyone who's gone through this process and taken part. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I might need a week or so just to kind of figure out how I feel. And for that week after the match I I felt completely lost and really bereft because I was like Mm. this thing that had given me so much life was just I just didn't have it and then um, I went back I went back I think a week or two later maybe even a month I don't know but not long afterwards anyway I went back to training the first day I got punched in the face and I was like god I've missed this so much (laughs) but I loved it I was like I've never felt so alive and so capable and so I don't know there was just something about it I I do wonder if you know I think that trauma and poverty and things like that are things that we need to not have but I think that physiologically to have this kind of consensual on purpose kind of uh exercising your survival or whatever I think it's really good for you like really really good for you and I think it you know I think it's a real exercise of your own power and your own ability however you you do that um but there was something about it that was just you know I still have moments now where I go back into like a particular fight that I had or training with somebody where they they threw a punch that went a bit wrong and and I'm just so happy about the whole thing um and yeah, I think, I think it's something that people should, should do if, if you have that little feeling and it happened because I'd seen my now brother-in-law, he'd done it and I'd gone to his match, I think about three or four months before I joined. And I was there with my sister, his now wife, uh, and his family. And as I was watching him beat the shit out of this guy part of me was like this is great this is so exciting and I'd never been to a a boxing match I don't watch sports um you know I used to play rugby a bit when I was younger but at at that time it it had never been kind of really visceral like I'd never really gotten into it that much or or I didn't enjoy it I did it because I was supposed to but it wasn't really ticking any boxes but I think later on you know this was like late 20s by the time you know I developed a bit by then I, I dealt with some of my trauma you know like I was much like I've moved on a bit so uh it was a shock to me that I would see my brother-in-law you know having a fight with somebody and throwing all these punches and there was blood at the end of it as well I never expected me to be like yeah I want to do that <laughs> I want to do this <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was brilliant. I think if you ever get the chance, I think the only thing is you do have to be careful about getting hit in the head. 
and uh, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. My my rep at, at, for the UWCB, Kevin. Um, shout out if he's listening. He nearly uh, shit a brick when I said during my first eight weeks, I'd made some joke about what's another concussion because growing up, I'm very tall and lanky, and uh, I I hurt myself a lot of times and. I think before boxing, it's not so much a problem now I'm an adult, but throughout my teens, I think I'd had in excess of 10 concussions and I'd been in hospital for oh quite my a while. I mean, I was just clumsy and always was. What were so, you doing? Uh, twice it was on the bus uh, when the bus slammed his brakes on and I hit my head on whatever furniture was in front oh of my me. Oh, um, I got think. It. I think I remember maybe three or four that was falling downstairs. Um, <laughs> I think, I think there was one where I slipped on some ice and hit my head on to, in my car. Um, there oh are other times my best friend will tell you about sometimes that I have no recollection of. So, yeah, there's quite. I can see why. Yeah, <laughs> so many times. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. I have I've never even had one concussion, so that's just interesting. I wouldn't recommend it. At least not it. that I know of. I mean, I laugh. Right, about right. Yeah, I laugh about it now because you know what? What else can you do? But yeah, don't don't have one. It's not very good. I oh. I hope I never one. <laughs> the last one I ever had was with my ex girlfriend, who I met at box at that boxing actually that year, and. um we were going with a friend of ours into London to meet up with some of my girlfriend's work friends. And uh, I went to sit on a railing. I was waiting for them. I don't know what they were doing. And I, but I didn't see there was a, an entire train screen, like, you know, with all the times and stuff right above my head. So as I jumped up, normally when I've hit my head, it's been the, my forehead, which is pretty good. Cause that's quite, that's quite chunky, the bone there, or it's been sort of like, maybe round the side but it, this was the first time I got a cracked across right the top of my skull wow. and um I hit the deck and I've never cried before when I've hit my head because you're know, just two days but this time I was like oh that's quite bad and uh it was just so ironic that that was my year of doing boxing getting smashed around and I was absolutely fine but went to a train station went just wanted to sit down <laughs> And ended up <laughs> cracking myself oh on the my head. Gosh. That's interesting. Um, there has been something where I've read something about some people being more accident prone. Yeah. Um, and I, I I guess I don't even want to put it out there. Like I don't the universe to shift gears. <laughs> no, um, touch wood. It's but fine. like right, yeah, right. Let me knock, let me knock on wood. <laughs> But I know that, like, with me, it's just it, little stuff, like hitting your foot and stuff like that, but never anything that serious. Wow, multiple concussions. That is yeah. that is very interesting. I wonder, is there, like, something to it, like, like someone who gets multiple concussions is, like, going to be rich when they're 50? I don't know. <laughs> no, I think it's just... Like, you never know. Like... I think it's because um, I grew very fast, so I think I never... It just took me Listen. years to get hold of my coordination, and now I'm fairly good and actually I think a lot of it was anxiety as well as well as like some other things mm. so now I have accidents but I know when it's going to happen I'm relaxed and my reflexes are quite quick now so I'm always saving the situation 
Got it. And also, <laughs> I, I normally wear my hair on end. So now I can tell that I'm going to touch yeah. something before I hit my head. So it's sort of like a, a, a hair helmet. A buffer. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's cool colors. I've been looking at your hair this whole time. I'm like, those colors are really pretty. Thank you. Um, I actually have to go. I think I need to yes. nurse the baby um, oh, for my, my next appointment. But yeah, so thankful. The- um, so honored to have been a part of this. Yeah, thank you so much, Chai. And I, I appreciate your time so much and everything that you shared today. It's been so valuable and I, I'm so appreciative of you coming on today. Hey, and thank you so much for joining us this week. Next week, I have the amazing Elliot Kay, who is a best-selling, multiple times best-selling author and speaker extraordinaire. Um, he's had an amazing career and continues to do so. And he's also just such a lovely bloke. Um, He's one of the men that I follow the most. And I find so much of what he says is such a lovely balance of emotional wholesomeness and also very practical advice. And, And I have actually had the pleasure of working with Elliot myself and putting together talks myself with him one on one. And he's just brilliant he's amazing at his job and he's great fun and he's also very sensitive so i really hope that you can join us for next week so until next time friends stay safe and please do share our podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it or benefit from it